Hello, friends. Greg Kokel here. The show is Stand to Reason. I am your host, and uh, this is my 33rd year of doing this. Now, we hasn't always been Stand to Reason. We're approaching our 29th anniversary coming up in uh, two months, two months from today, actually. So, uh, but I was doing radio before that, and uh, and that was one of the things that kind of was a springboard uh, to help launch the organization, but... Um, uh, time flies when you're having a good time, right? I uh, I want to. I've got a bunch of callers on board here. I'll be getting to you very shortly. I do have some opening comments that are brief, relatively brief, and um, uh, one of them is a, a kind of follow-up response to my uh, the conversation I had with the last caller on the last show, which for me was just a few minutes ago, so it's fresh on my mind. And um, that has to do with a recommendation that I had made about how he's approaching um, a challenge when talking to people about creation and evolution. Now, um, I, the, my point is a point that I make at the end of the tactics book. And the point could be put this way. Do not make your task harder for you than it needs to be. All right. So there are all kinds of things that Christians believe that one could make an issue of and try to defend. One of those is young earth creationism, which is what the gentleman was talking about a little bit there. God bless him. It was fine. It's not my view, but nevertheless, I respect it. But I want you to think about something. Um, You're increasing your difficulty of persuading someone of the truth of God's world, if you are focusing on, for example, demonstrating to an outsider that the earth is young and the universe is young, or demonstrating to an outsider that Darwinian evolution is false. Now, I don't think the universe is young, but I do think Darwinian evolution is false. And I think, by the way, that's not inconsistent. Some people think if you think the universe is old, you must be an evolutionist. Not so. There is no necessary connection. If the Earth is young, evolution must be false. But if the universe and the Earth is old, it still could be false, and I think it is. Okay? But there is so much more complication in dealing with Darwinism. I mean, I even, after all these years and all that I know, I, I, I try to avoid that issue unless I'm forced into it. Because it's complex, um, there there are people who go very deep in this issue that are really good at it. Doug Axe, for example, at uh, with intelligent design. Stephen Meyer, Paul Nelson, uh, these are all guys that work with the ID movement. Those are the ones I follow more and know. Uh, but uh, they've done the job. They've just eviscerated evolution. But they've got they've got the creds to accomplish that. I know some of the issues. I know more than most, but still, it's tough, especially when most people think it's a fait accompli. It's a, it's a done deal. Evolution is fact in the Darwinian sense, and so they're not even going to countenance anything because any anything contrary, because in their view, so many believe this. Now, it is true that many qualified people do hold to this view, um, but there are philosophic elements that come in, and that are factors in persuading them. And as some have said, it must be the case, like it must have happened, because what's the alternative? What, special creation? Forget about that. We're not even going there. 
And so that's their predisposition. That's their presupposition. Um, that is their uh, that is their uh, their final answer. Okay. Um, so so strategically now, in order to um, be smart, if you can avoid going there, don't go there. Go to the beginning of the universe as an issue, regardless of the time that's involved. Uh, both Christians and virtually all non-Christians believe, and and even those who are lettered in the issues, um, deny an eternal universe, or at least don't hold to eternal universe. And that's because the astronomical evidence is for the beginning of the universe is so good. But see, this is a simple kind of argument. All things that come into existence, or, or I should say, all things... Uh, essentially, I'm thinking about the simplest way of giving this cosmological argument, um, and it's something to the effect of, uh, of all effects have causes, or all things that came into existence uh, had, a, had a cause. The universe came into existence, therefore the universe had a cause. Okay, it's a very straightforward way of arguing. And we know the universe... The evidence for it coming into existence is really powerful, and the metaphysical notion that effects have causes is pretty powerful, too. Therefore, we can reason from this cosmological argument to a cause that is going to have to be much like the God of the Bible, if uh, the cause has to be—the effect has to be—let uh, me back up—if the cause has to be adequate for the effect— and that's the principle of sufficient reason. So, anyway, I just made a comment there about being strategic in uh, tackling the issues with non-Christians. You don't want to make a non-Christian jump through too many hoops. I mean, the God thing, if you're talking to an atheist, all by itself is a biggie. All right? You get that one in place, well, and you could put a stone in their shoe or whatever on um, that issue, okay, then that's a that's a huge step forward. And what I found is when people acknowledge that God does exist, that this changes the whole equation afterwards. And some of these issues, especially if somebody's then led to the issue of Jesus of Nazareth and the cross and the resurrection and forgiveness and all of that and becomes a Christian, these other issues simply take care of themselves. It's been my experience. All right. Uh, let's say uh, the other issue I wanted to talk about very briefly is a, a, a question that has come up, and I have a couple of different iterations of it here in front of me, but it's simply put, is Christianity passe? Is Christianity out of step with modern norms and conventions, and, you know, it's is it just, not, is Christianity not hip anymore? And my answer is, Christianity's never been hip, all right? Not the real McCoy. Um, there have been stages where, you know, people became Christian because it did seem to be hip. During the Jesus movement, um, there were uh, uh, lots of people became Christian, or seemed to. Even, even um, oh, the times they are a changing guy. But Bob Dylan became a Christian, or so it seemed, or so he said. And uh, who is the guy who said, Why Me, Lord, that song, that kind of a country singer, actor... Um, 
I can see him in my mind's eye right now, but I can't think. But he wrote a popular actor, Chris Christopherson, back then, 73, 74, when I became a blue. He, you know, he write the, wrote this song, Why Me, Lord, and um, what have I ever done to deserve loving you and the kindness you've shown, whatever it is, you know, the lyrics. Uh, he, he apparently became a Christian. That didn't last as far as I could tell. So I guess there are occasions when there is some kind of Christianity that seems to be hip, and there are probably some examples of that now. But I'm talking about the real follower of Jesus, disciple of Jesus, get serious, and don't live like the world, and don't be conformed to the world, but be conformed to Christ and make a difference for Him. That kind of Christian, that's never been really hip. All right. Um, The Christian ethic has always been out of step with the culture. We think, of, oh, all this sexuality now and all the variety and everything, that was all true in the first century. Then the second and the third and the fourth, and then there were periods when the sexual ethic got a little bit more conservative, and then it got crazy again, but genuine Christianity has always been out of step. That's because there's a big difference between between God and the world. <laughs> <laughs> do not be conformed to this world, Paul says in Romans chapter 12. Uh, John talks about the, the, the three enemies of the world, the flesh and the devil, the boast, boastful pride of life, all of those kinds of things. So, you know, um, there's always going to be the conflict. And Christians are, as it were, behind enemy lines all the time. Is Christianity passe? What does that mean? You like it's old, antiquated, out of step? Yeah. So what? The truth doesn't change as fashion changes. If God is real, and there was reasons to believe that he was real, and had authority over all that he made, a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago, five thousand years ago, all of that is just as powerful today. Just because fashions change doesn't mean that God disappears. Though Nietzsche said that God is dead, um, if God is alive, then God can't be dead, even if people think he is. And the fashions change. Uh, Jesus of Nazareth was a man of history, his feet on the ground. He lived and had a powerful impact on history. And by the way, if you want to get a clear picture in that uh, one, that I never had such a such a, a vivid characterization of uh, until recently, then get uh, J. Warner Wallace's book, "A Man of uh, a Person of Interest." I just heard his lecture again two days ago in Dallas. He gives this lecture in the subsequent realities for this year in Philly in a month and uh, in two months in Augusta, Georgia. Uh, But it it is mind-boggling the impact that Jesus of Nazareth has had on everything in the entire world. Oh, wait, what about those places where he's not heard of? There's almost no place he's not heard of because virtually every religion of the world has incorporated Jesus into into their system. Islam has Jesus in their system, Hinduism put Jesus into their system. Just about every Buddhism put Jesus into their system. So all the places where Christianity is not declared, but these religions are, they're going to hear about Jesus in some form or other. So this is a, this is a uh, you have a real person that had a real impact on the world. 
And if he rose from the dead 2,000 years ago, his resurrection is still a fact today. Even if Christianity is passe in the sense that it's not popular, the 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 bare facts don't change. Well, he's not in step with the culture. What do you mean, but not in step with the culture? Humans are still humans. They 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 still are made the image of God. They they yearn for something beyond themselves. They try to fill that void with all kinds of things that don't satisfy. We know this. And sooner or later, most of us are aware of the inadequacy of all of these things. Actually, the people who get them are the where most. Those of us who didn't get all the goodies, we think if we just get more of the goodies, then we'll be more satisfied with life than we are. It's when we get all the goodies, then we think, just like Solomon, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. No, that need is still there. And the existential guilt is still there. We are actually guilty. We feel guilty because we are guilty. That doesn't go away. That need is still there. The search for meaning and significance in a transcendent sense is still there. We can make up our own little meanings, but that's just too small. Most of us know there's something bigger than us going on here. And so what I'm saying is man is still man no matter what cultural trappings um, surround him at any given time. And though fashions might change, oh, yeah, eight tracks, they're passe. Oh, you know, uh, what was the other? Cassette tapes, they're passe. Oh, DVDs, you don't even have a DVD player in your computer anymore when you just buy, you just got a new Mac. It doesn't even have a DVD player. Can't put a disc in it. It's passe. Yeah, trends change. Ultimate truth does not. And if somebody says, your Christianity is out of step with the culture, I say, right on, brother. I might even say groovy. Of course it's out of step with the culture. That's the point. It is grounded and rooted in, 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 in durable reality. And the truths remain the same even when fashions change. All right, that's a good start. Let's just go to quickly to my first break, and then I'll come back to my callers here on Stand to Reason. The world says you can be a boy or a girl. You can be gay or straight. You can be cis or trans. There's no right or wrong way to define yourself. No one can tell you who you are. You decide who you want to be, and whatever that is, it can change whenever you want. That's because your identity is untethered to reality. It's chaos. But you don't have to listen to the world. You can listen to a different account of who you are, one told by your maker. And this one is anchored to reality and will bring you from chaos to clarity. Don't miss this year's Reality Conference. Go to realityapologetics.com to get dates and locations for the Student Apologetics event of the year. When you choose to support Stand to Reason with a monthly gift of $10 or more, you become a strategic partner in the work of equipping Christian ambassadors. Your monthly commitment makes you a part of a special group, helping STR-trained Christians to confidently and graciously defend their convictions. Your monthly gift helps us plan and manage STR's resources and provides consistent support to aid our ongoing work. As our thanks for your partnership, we have created some benefits to express our gratitude, like a 10% discount in our online store, access to a private Facebook group, and more. 
To become a strategic partner, visit str.org donate. Click How Often Will You Donate and choose Monthly. For personal assistance, you can email Ocean Wilson at ocean at str.org. All right, Greg Kokel here. Stand to reason and first caller of this hour, Sam. Let me get it. Sam in Missouri. Hello, Sam. Hey, Greg. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you doing today? Pretty good. I got uh, 40 minutes of my show left, 45 minutes, and then I head home for pizza. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> so what's on your mind? Yeah, so I called a while ago. Um, and I read off something my professor had given as an assignment. And so I'm calling today on a similar issue okay. from the same professor. Okay. By the way, where, I, where are you going to school? Just out of curiosity, if you don't mind saying. Um, I'm going to community college right now. Okay. Um, but anyway... I turned in an assignment and I quoted C.S. Lewis um, and Mere Christianity Uh when he talks about how we appeal to a moral law or, as he says, the natural law. Yeah, Lewis does, right, in uh, the opening pages of Mere Christianity. Uh Um, And at the bottom of my paper, he put a footnote and I was going to read it off and hear what you had to say about okay, it. Okay, the he here is your professor, right? Yes. So he's responding to your paper in which you cite Lewis regarding uh, our, our moral sense that Lewis calls the natural law that we're all aware of, the natural law of morality, and your professor apparently didn't like it. So he says what? He says, I like your take on natural law, however as I think you mean by it, the capacity that has, by long evolutionary processes, given human beings, and I would argue some other animals, a capacity for graciousness, self-sacrifice, recognition of the other, and the potential for compassion. From the standpoint of an empiricist, I don't so much find meaning as make it, and given that I couldn't, and that's pretty much where it ends. Okay, what's interesting is, can you read the list there? Uh, self-sacrifice, um, a capacity for... Capacity for graciousness, recognition of the other, and the potential for compassion. Recognition of the other, potential for... Compassion. Okay, I'm going to make an observation about that, and this is a uh, this is going to the heart, I think, of the problem of this approach. What he is has suggested, actually, there's a lot of problems with it, but he what he has suggested is that um, given our sense of morality that we all share, this is Lewis's point. There is a an explanation for that in the, it, it, 
in in Darwinian evolution, I was going to talk about empirical thing, but there's not an empirical evolution is an empirical uh, is is it empirically. Um, I'm trying to choose my words very carefully here. Uh, an empirical methodology is employed um, for people to draw the conclusion that animals evolved biologically. Okay? And then there is an extrapolation from the idea of biological evolution to other things that must be the result of biological evolution, and that's psychological states including our moral senses, okay? And uh, this is something humans have, and he says even other animals have. I, I, I'd want to know the examples of this, but looking at, but, but I'll show you one problem. Self-sacrifice, a capacity for, um, hmm, I can't read my own handwriting here. What is it? What does he say? Capacity for what? Capacity for graciousness. Oh, graciousness. That's it. Okay. Um, uh, recognition of the other and potential for compassion. Do you notice that all of these are descriptive. Okay. He is assuming that compassion is good morally, that graciousness is good, that self-sacrifice is good. You can see... One person can sacrifice himself on behalf of another. That is a that is something you can see happen, and when you say, he fell on that grenade, that is an act of self-sacrifice. It is another step to say self-sacrifice is a virtue. Do you understand what I'm saying here? Yeah. But that's a step that you can't make with evolution. Because evolution only explains if it works. I don't think it works to do this. But if it does work, all it can do is explain why we believe that falling on grenade is good. Because it helps get the genes of our buddies or close family members or whatever into the next generation. That's kind of like getting our genes into the next generation. So the genes that fall on grenades... Because we're helping our, that gets in the next generation. But that doesn't establish falling on grenades as good. Because there is, the Darwinian model can only describe things, it cannot prescribe things. It cannot say, it cannot establish that we ought to fall on grenades in those circumstances. That it is virtuous, it is indeed virtuous to do so. It can only describe why we do that. It can't prescribe why we ought to. It can only look to the past. It can't look in the future. The problem with that is, is that genuine morality is not descriptive. It is prescriptive. It tells us not what we do, but what we should do. And even Lewis makes this point. There are lots of times we know what we ought to do, but we don't do it. We should have done one thing, but we didn't. So the Darwinian model fails to explain why self-sacrifice is good, why graciousness is a vir- 
virtue, why recognition of the other is a is a noble thing, why there's a potential for compassion, that that is laudatory. That's a separate step. What turns out in the evolutionary model is that even if evolution works the way people say it works in the biological realm, and I do not think that is ultimately defensible, I think Darwinian evolution is not adequate to explain those things. But even, and therefore, if it can't explain the biological realm, it cannot explain the psychological realm. Okay? But even if it were, the only thing that it can ultimately give us is a description of why we believe in moral things, not make those things moral in themselves. It's a relativistic system. It, it, it cannot explain objective morality, and it, it can't explain obligation either, which is what I was pointing out earlier. It can't be prescriptive. So uh, I, don't, I don't think that your, your professor has given you anything to undermine Lewis's argument. He's just given his opinion. He thinks Darwinism can account for our feelings of evolution. I'm sorry, of uh, morality. Now, um, last week, I actually dealt with this question at extensively in, um, let's see, the, I'm thinking here, I think it was the second hour, uh, so it would be Fridays, Fridays um, of last week, the end of February, the, that, that um, podcast, which is also, by, uh, by the way, available on our Facebook by video, if you wanted to watch the video, but I did two sessions last week, session one and session two, where I, John Noyes and I were critiquing a critique of, a, uh, of, a, of an atheist, of something that I'd done. And one of those responses entailed the notion of morality and how this particular individual, his name is Drew, invoked Darwinism the same way that your professor invoked it in order to uh, explain our our uh, explain morality should our our beliefs about morality and uh so i encourage you to take a look at that on our facebook or just listen to that podcast because i went through a great amount of detail on why the darwinian thing is not going to work uh, and s- some of those things i i've repeated here um but the, one of the biggest problems is all that Darwinism can give you is relativistic morality. That means rape is not actually wrong. We just, contrary to fact, believe it's wrong because evolution has tricked us into believing that. Uh, sexual slavery is not wrong. Child molestation is not wrong in itself, in themselves. Um, genocide is not wrong in itself. There are no things that are wrong in themselves, and there are no things that are right in themselves either. There is no badness, there is no goodness in the world. On this explanation of things, all we have is a trickery of evolution to cause us to believe some things are wrong when in fact nothing is wrong and nothing is right. Now that to me is a pretty hefty pill to swallow. But that is what your professor is going to have to affirm, given this characterization or explanation of morality. 
Makes sense. Um, yeah, I do have a question. Okay. I guess I understand how evolution can't really account for like how we got our moral sense. You do or don't? I I do understand that. Okay, if what? you if you do, I have a question though. Tell me how a biological mechanism, genetic mutation, that's all we have is genes mutated here. That's what you what natural selection has to work with. How can biology cause you to believe something false? How can biology create a belief? Right. Yes, I agree. I think that's a serious problem here. And incidentally, if biology creates false beliefs, and uh, I quote Michael Roos, the philosopher, and who who is also an atheist, naturalistic philosopher, upholding this explanation of evolution, um, then then if it can create false beliefs about morality, how does it create accurate beliefs? about anything else how how do we how do we trust our faculties maybe my belief his belief in evolution is also a false belief created by i don't know something it, it, you see it calls into question the whole i don't think bio, biological systems have uh causes have biological effects but a a, a belief that rape is wrong is not a biological effect. It is a mental notion, not a biological notion. So there's kind of a disconnect between the cause and the effect. Now, I'll, I'll tell you something here, and I didn't mention this last week, but I'll mention it now just kind of in closing. I'll, I'll give you this to think about. Consciousness, which is kind of what we're referring to now. We're referring to consciousness holding beliefs. Okay, you with me on that? Still there? Yeah, you said consciousness okay. holding beliefs. Yes, we are conscious creatures. Our awareness. Okay, rocks aren't aware of themselves. We are aware of ourselves. Okay? That's called consciousness. Our conscious awareness of things. You're aware of me talking. And then you're going to be aware of all kinds of other things too. That's consciousness, that's awareness. Consciousness cannot itself be explained by Darwinian evolution. In fact, this problem is so bad that one of the new atheists, an evolutionist himself, Daniel Dennett, has declared that consciousness is an illusion. Our, we think we're conscious, but that's just an illusion. We're not really conscious. That's what he said. Because Darwinism cannot account for our awareness. Now, if Daniel Dennett, one of the new atheists, has to go to such extremes that he denies the existence of consciousness because Darwinism can't explain it, how can Darwinism explain a feature of consciousness called morality? It's not going to work. So what your professor is going to have to do is he's going to have to demonstrate, at least give a characterization of how a biological process can produce a non-biological thought or conviction or belief. 
they have not done this. They can't do it. They can't even do it with consciousness, which is why even Daniel Dennett has abandoned, has given up the ghost, so to speak, pardon the pun. Consciousness is an illusion. I'm not making this up. So anyway, there's more to think about. All right, Sam, I got to run because I got some more callers here. All right. Yeah, thank you. Okay, good talking to you, and thank you so much you for too. your yeah, thank you for your call. They call back again, and we'll talk some more about this. Uh, let's see. I'm looking at my clock right now. Okay, let's go to Kevin. Kevin in uh, currently in Florida, but from Canada, yeah. sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. We talked a couple of weeks ago, Greg. How you doing? I'm doing, doing okay. good. good. I can yeah. Tell. Right yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm good. Good, thank, good. Thank you. All right. Hey, but uh, you're. you're uh, stumbling block, my friend. We talked about health and nutrition a couple of weeks ago. You're going home to pizza. <laughs> it's, pizza. Brother, it's it's vegetarian thin crust. I was, that was the next question. Okay. <laughs> but, hey, this stuff is just, I don't, uh, just a side question here, real, real quick here. Do you find it challenging when you're talking to people and some of the things they believe? Like, I've had quite a few conversations, just like what you just said about uh, Daniel Dennett, I think you said yeah. his name was. And right. They come up with stuff like this, and people actually believe that. Yeah, it it, it, it is challenging, it, and it's, it is, it's, it's discouraging oh. because there is no reasonable oh, basis my, for the my, belief. My, my. Oh my my my! I mean, Christianity, like you say very well, is it's a real world account of history. It's yeah. verifiable. Yeah, and hey, we can go on. I agree, but let me let me add something here too. I would put this issue that I talked about just a few moments ago with my caller, I would put this in the form of a question. If Darwinism cannot account for consciousness, and it's so severe, the problem is so severe that even Daniel yeah. Dennett has to call consciousness as illusion, how could then Darwinism account for a feature of consciousness called morality? Uh, oh, it, yeah, there's, there's a question. There it is. Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> you got to get this. Uh, you're, hey, I hear you're oh, you're going to have another book out this month. Yeah, we're, well, not this month. Oh, my come my on. due date is May. <laughs> It'll come out it's, maybe, it's, God willing, December. Yeah, it's hard writing though. Is okay? Yeah. But, uh, but science. I mean, I, I called in I, my questions real quick. But science is supposed to be what you can test and observe and repeat. What and we don't. And correct me if I'm wrong, but we there's two we don't observe evolution. We observe stability, right? Well, it kind of depends how you put this. Macro um, evolution. Not macro. No, you don't. You, no. you no, well that's, that's, there, there is a there is an appeal to the fossil record on one level at least to show that things went yeah. from simple to more complex over time. And so yeah. that ten, that is given as uh evidence for Darwinian evolution because it fits the model. But these are what you see as these great spurts and jumps from one fully formed kind to another fully formed kind. You don't see the intermediate right. forms exactly. that are necessary. Yeah. You're right, that's a problem. But yeah. you have you have a question about something yeah. different. Pastors owning multi million dollar homes. I do. Okay. I, I had a conversation and uh over the years I've had conversations about it. And just it's been on my mind uh, about what your thoughts are with pastors who are you know, they have uh multi-million dollar homes. Mm -hmm. now, I'm not saying what I think now. I'm just... Yeah. Uh, and let me... And just because I always connect it with what's going on in the world today, and we talked in the last, my last call about the state of the family and what's going on and wow. how... Um, I mean, it's, it, it is very, very troubling, okay? Very... And so I, I, I kind of 
try to connect it all and thinking, why can't we all just get together? We have the resources. We have the man. I think we can get some, you know, foot soldiers out there to help out as well. Yeah. But why can't and, and, and build schools and, and make it very, right. very, very affordable, very affordable? Um, because the reality is a lot of people can't afford to send their children to Christian schools. Mm-hmm. But it's questionable anyway. But, but just the million-dollar homes, I guess we'll stick to that for now. Um, and maybe you have one. I don't know. But no, Well, I, I live in Southern California, Ventura County, and so it's pretty hard to have any home at all that isn't approaching a million dollars in value, even if it's a piece of junk. No. It's just the way uh, it is. No. That, you know, I, I know. But Vancouver's that's like not that. the kind of thing you're talking about. No. Um, the, uh, I, I actually think there is an issue of excess in this. I think these are sometimes a little bit difficult to pin down. Um, but sure. I do, because, you know, people work hard and earn money, and they, they are they are allowed to keep uh, and enjoy much of what they've earned, even before God. I mean, if you think about even the, um, the tithing system of the Old Testament, and I don't hold to that. That was part of the Old Covenant. It was right. under Jews were uh, uh, obliged, not Gentiles yeah. for that, and yeah. none of us now, in my view. Um, but it still, you know, worked out, well, it says tithe 10%. It was really closer when you think of all of it, more like 30%, but still there was 70% to use and enjoy as one would. So there is a principle of being able to keep for one's own enjoyment the fruit of one's labors. And if one wants to be more generous, then they're willing, then they're certainly, that's fine too. Widows might, for example. Um, but I, I do think, uh, and, and I think in the New Testament economy, you, that, that general principle doesn't change. But I do think your point is really a good one. And we are to be able to earn enough that we take care of our own needs, this is Pauline yeah. theology, yeah. and yeah. be able to help out with others yeah. who have genuine need. So yeah. there should be an overflow in our life of Absolutely. giving. And so though tithing yeah. is not a New Testament ethic, giving certainly is. Sure. And and so uh, this is something that we are obliged before the Lord to, um, yes. to participate yeah. in, but it's as Paul puts it in Corinthians, as each as has, um, how does he put it, reasoned or, or purposed in his own heart. So this is up to the individual. So there is a certain flexibility there, okay? No. At the same time, I think, you know, there is, in many cases, radical excess, too, when a whole bunch is being spent on the self and very little is being used uh, to, to, to charity, as what we classically would call it, and to helping others that are in genuine need. And I think that's a problem. Yes, yes, yes. Um, I think it's First John 3.17 comes to mind about whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need. Mm-hmm. But anyway, it goes on to talk about helping out people who are in need. And we, we certainly live in a different culture, right, today than we did in the Old Testament, I think, with everything that's going on. there, I think there is more need today. And like I said, the state of the family, right? Mm-hmm. And we, I mean, there's so much need out there. So anyway, I was just curious. Uh, yeah, and I, I don't know exa- exactly how I would characterize comparing, and I'll, I'll have to make this my last comment, Comparing our circumstance to, you know, first century, I, I actually think there were a lot more needs in the first century. Uh, now we have we have an abundance, and most people in America, at least, participate in that. But all the more reason when there is genuine need for people to share and uh, and help out there when they have 
so much. So I, I think your point is well taken. Okay, got to run. I got a bunch of people on. All right. Here. Okay, okay keep up the work. Yeah, Take care, yeah. Thanks for your call. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. All right. No commercial now. Let's just keep going. And this is going to be Adam, Richmond, Virginia. Hello, Adam. Hi. How are you, sir? I'm doing pretty good today. What's up? Good. Good. Um, well, I wanted to ask. I, I've just uh, just recently started listening to uh, this podcast and the hashtag STR Ask. Oh, cool. I've kind of been binging on them. Um, <laughs> well, and, thank uh, you. I'm flattered by that. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Um, but my my question was, um, I, I ran across a meme on social media the other day, and I I wanted to respond, but I found myself like um, my response was not going to be coming from the right right place. So. Uh-huh. Um, I wanted to to kind of get your input how you would um, how you might graciously respond to it if at all you know it might be better to just leave it alone you know on the social media sure. platform yeah um, but it said, I think um, by the way in general it's better to leave it alone than give a bad response all right okay <laughs> so that's wisdom brother oh good um, but the meme said uh, something to and I'm paraphrasing here something to the effect of half a million kids are in uh, foster care. Tell me again how pro-life you really are. Okay. So, I mean, I, I can kind of see, you know, I, you know, we're, we're comparing apples and oranges or, or you know, sitting, I, I'm not sure on the, uh, the tactic term you might use. Uh, is this a straw man, you know, setting up something that would be easily knocked well, down? Well, a, straw, a straw man is when you mischaracterize another person's view, and I don't think that that's what's going on here. Um, I think this is a shallow... A shallow kind of challenge, um, and the the fact. Okay, the presumption here is if we were really, if Christians were really pro life, then no kids would be in foster care. That's kind of so. Since there are kids in foster care, then you're not really pro life. That would be kind of giving the bare bones of the argument. But but how how is it the case that? if people are really pro-life, that there would be no kids in foster care. Uh, Christians aren't—there are so many Christians that are actually foster care parents that are caring for these kids, first of all. So how many of these foster care parents are actually Christians doing good work on behalf of those kids? Being pro-life doesn't uh, necessarily—well, let me put it this way, back up— just because one is pro-life doesn't mean we have the capability of pulling kids out of the foster care system. I mean, so that's right. one mistake. So we all these pro-life, I'm pro-life, so therefore I can take this child? Well, maybe they're not there for the taken. The government controls the foster care system. There are lots of Christians, I've known them, who take kids as foster care kids because they know that they can they are pro life and they can give these kids uh, a good home. Well, one of my, our, our family's closest friends with my daughters is in that situation. Okay, and what they did is I think they started out with foster care with these kids, and then they um, then they adopted these kids. And what happens sometimes in foster care circumstances is the parents get these kids for a period of time and get take care of them and love them up really wonderfully. And then because of the way the law is, at some point, these kids can then be returned to their mother, taken away from those Christian parents or non-Christian parents who have loved them well. Uh, and now they're bereft of these children that they've been raising. Think of the pain that causes. 
But that's the way right. the system works. I don't see any clear connection between the number of people who are in foster care and number of kids that are cost and the number of pro-life people. That That's a connection that's not been made. How many right. pro-life people are foster care parents? Lots. How many people uh, could adopt foster care kids realistically? Not that many, maybe. Right. But that doesn't mean well, that when you are against killing children, that you're somehow disingenuous. Uh, it, right. it, look, you know, it's like it's that's like saying, you know, oh, re- are you really against me beating my wife? Well, then why don't you marry her? That's kind of a crazy right. kind of way of arguing. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. Well, no, I was just going to say, and you know, to me, you know, we're, when we're talking about abortion, we're talking about murder versus, you know, uh, a kid in foster care system. It's like the, I mean, we're talking about murder versus taking care of a kid. It, uh, the two just don't correlate. That's right. At all. Exactly. And even if even if pro lifers are not so pro life that they take all the foster kids for themselves. That doesn't mean that killing an unborn child is fine, has no moral consequences. So this is an absolute non sequitur. It's a complete disconnect. It's a distraction. It's just a way of assaulting pro-lifers. It does not deal with the, with the, the moral logic of the pro-life view which is it's wrong to take the life of an innocent human being. Abortion takes the life of an innocent human being. Therefore, abortion is wrong. Right. Okay, that's very straightforward. So uh, I think you exercise good judgment, though, in, um, oh, in <laughs> not responding when you didn't have a good—I actually can't think of a clever response to that just right off the top of my head, but I did try to explain a little bit of what was wrong with it. Incidentally, do you know about uh, Red Pen Logic? Oh, yes. I have, uh, I've actually binge-watched, uh, I think, all of uh, Mr. B's videos. So yeah, I'm well, that's good. waiting for his next one. Because this is the kind <laughs> of thing that he deals with. So, listen, i got to run. We've got more callers here, but I appreciate the call. Okay, uh, Adam? Absolutely. Okay. Thanks for the time. Sure. All the best. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. Let's go to uh, Mr. Matthew here in Santa Clara, California. Matthew, welcome to the show. Hello, Greg. Thank you for having me. Sure. Um, I had a question. Um, are you familiar with the Babylon Bee? Yes, I am. In fact, I've been a guest on their show uh, quite a number of times. I know they have a radio podcast thing, and then they also have a publication. So they're kind of a tongue-in-cheek um, news source of sorts, you know, and they uh, they do a lot of fun things. Yes, my family and I find them very amusing. Um, however, recently... Um, we've kind of had a discussion. Um, I fa- that is, my family members and I have been having a discussion um, because we've found some of the Babylon Bee posts on more sensitive topics um, to be perhaps a little callous. We're not sure uh-huh. how comfortable we are with those. And um, we're very accustomed to satirical or sarcastic humor uh, uh-huh. in our family. Right. Uh, so we're not afraid of it, but we're wondering, given how sensitive or prone to offense our culture tends to be, mm-hmm. um, whether things like the Babylon Bee, where we're taking serious topics and poking fun at them, where we might draw a line yeah. um, in terms of... Um, recognizing people might take offense yeah. and in the hopes of offering 
grace um, and uh, being friendly towards them and trying to be understanding whether we should avoid some of that humor. And I I watched a Sean McDowell video with Bill Berry and, um, but I'm still kind of, that question is still kind of floating around in my head right now. Sure, good. And and I I appreciate your sensitivity and I think it's a good instinct. All right. Um, I will say this, that this, uh, this, the culture is very prone to offense, but it is in an extremely self-serving way. They have no qualms with offending people who do not think like they think. None whatsoever. And they do it constantly. Uh, the anti-bullying crowd, for example, just as a, a, a uh, like a parallel, is the uh, they're the biggest bullies on the planet. OK, so so uh, I there, there's a very self-serving element here. There is, uh, you know, the tor- the tolerance street is a one way street. Um, the sensitivity street is a one way street. It's all about them. Okay, but be that as it may, it is still the reality that people are going to take offense, even when no offense is appropriate. And when with a, with with parody or satire, let the the Babylon Bee traffics in. Whether well, you know offenses, I don't want to say they're trying to make offense, but they aren't. Um, they aren't afraid of riding the edge, especially to make a point and to and to do it humorously. And a lot of times the points are really good, and it is pretty humorous, all right? So um, when, it, when it comes, though, to taking something they've done that, that resonates with you, and you can laugh at it and think it's funny, and yeah, that points out how ridiculous some of these things happen to be, that doesn't mean that someone on the other side of the tracks, ideologically, is going to think it's that funny, okay? And especially when they're very prone to taking offense. And so... Um, your instincts are good. If these are people that you think would take offense at this parody, then don't send it to them. However, you might learn something from the parody. A point might be made that you can leverage in conversation with these people, but not in uh, the the satirical uh, fashion that uh, maybe the Babylon Bee has employed the point to right. to do what they do. Okay, you could take the point itself and repurpose it in a different way f- for your audience that might be more sensitive. So you can learn from the Babylon Bee, but you don't have to take their approach to communicating their points that they took when you're talking with somebody that you think might be offended. Okay. Does I that make sense? So, yeah, totally. That makes a lot more sense. I think my main um, worry was just, or at least my family's worry, um, all of us together were, were kind of uh, questioning whether we should be engaging in that, but I suppose privately um, and then going out and being gracious to those sure. who might take offenses. Sure, fine. exactly. I don't see there's a problem with with poking fun at foolishness and doing it in a humorous exactly. way. It's a standard technique of a literary technique satire or parody and it's meant to make a point you know that most nursery right. rhymes are satirical they have political history to them you know yeah. humpty dumpty on the wall humpty dumpty had a great fall blah 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 these are all mm-hmm. these are these are these are clever ways of poking fun 
or poking or either poking fun at foolishness or identifying foolishness or that you know that was that's the way they did things back then and so i i'm right. i'm fine with the art form literary art form but i think we have to be careful how we use it so i'm with you on that all righty all righty thanks greg that clears that up a lot for me all right buddy matthew in santa clara good to talk to you Good talking to you. Okay, bye. Let's uh, go to Zach. And Zach, you made it. We only have about four minutes, <laughs> but we got you in. Hey, sure. How you doing? Hey, doing good. Thanks for hey, having by me. By the way, Augusta, Georgia, we're going to be there in two months. Yes, sir. I'm looking forward to it. Great. Uh, we have our and we're ready to go. That's great. Okay, what's on your mind? Yeah, I uh, just had a question. Um, I guess on how to how to think through maybe a little bit more clearly. I guess a Christian consideration for self defense or possibly uh, military involvement. Um, to just kind of, I guess the the instigator for all of this was a, a you know, I guess the situation in Ukraine. You know, I was thinking if I was sure. in that situation, uh, and, and and I know that there's a lot of churches that that stayed in in the uh, in the invasion. Um, you know, for I guess for very justifiable reasons for the sake of the gospel, uh, but then I also know that we also are also told in Scripture to to flee the persecution. Uh, so I guess I was just wasn't really sure, um, you know. And then I'm I'm kind of dabbling, I guess. To just get no, no, you're fine. You're fine. I, uh, by the way, this I do not think that broadly this is an issue of persecution. This is an issue of invasion. So this yeah. is a military action. It, it has consequence of persecution for Christians, depending on how that all plays out. Uh, they they may just be hurt, not as Christians, but as citizens, given the nature of this invasion. So um, so here's my question, just kind of uh, going right to the point here. Did Israel, under God's direction, have a military? Yeah. Did they fight battles? Yeah. For morally appropriate purposes? Yeah, so so the military itself is not immoral. God ordained military under certain circumstances. It also says in the New Testament that God ordains um, uh, rulers and authorities of, over communities in order to punish evildoers and, and the praise of those who do good, so to speak. So uh, you have you have these themes in the Bible where God ordains in different ways the ruling authorities to take um, violent action for good reason. And if that's being done by, by uh, larger groups— if there's a proper role for that with larger groups like a military, it seems to me there's also a proper role for that in, in for individuals and for families. Um, I think that pacifism is immoral, though I know that there are Christians that are pacifists. Um, I think that pacifism itself um, dictates inaction when we have a moral responsibility to take action and save and preserve innocent life whether it's on a military basis, on a large scale, or a small scale, on an individual or family basis. It's wrong to take innocent human life. If that innocent human life that someone is attempting to take is mine, I am certainly um, allowed to defend myself, even to the point of using lethal force. So, uh, I, I, I mean, biblically, I think that's a sound way of thinking. 
Sure. Uh, thank you. <laughs> well, that's it. That's all we. I said you got sixty seconds to respond, but I guess you're satisfied with that. I, you know, it's kind of the quick shot right there, the thumbnail sketch, so to speak. But I think it's good thinking. And, sure. and some people think that Jesus turned the other cheek, kind of thing, um, put a new ethic in there for Christians. But um, it's very interesting that when Jesus was wrongly slapped, he did not turn the other cheek. This was at his trial. He 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 asked for an accounting. If I did something wrong, bear witness to the wrong. If I did no wrong, then why did you slap me? Very interesting. What Jesus was talking about turning the other cheek is not self-defense. He was talking about taking one, taking judgment into one's own hands by a personal affront. You know, and there's details in the uh, in the account there. It makes it clear there's a backhanded slap that Jesus is talking about, which is an affront, and we're not to, you know, take our own uh, take take our own vengeance essentially on that. But self-defense is an entirely different circumstance. Anyway, hey, thanks for the call, Zach. And uh, there's the music, and that's the show. So uh, great talking with you guys today. I'm Greg Kokel for Stand to Reason. Give them heaven, friends. Bye-bye now.